The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real. It's just your point of view. How does it feel for you? Einstein said he could never understand it all. Planets are spinning through space. Smile upon your face. Welcome to the human race. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the editor of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, which has a pretty good uh, track record over the last uh, number of years since the year 2000. A $1,000 investment would have grown to $2,750 by the end of this past week. And uh, that compares with the S&P 500. That's Abby Joseph Cohen's favorite investment, which has gone from $1,000 in January of 2000 to $783, a net loss for that establishment investment. Mainly gold and gold shares have been responsible for my better performance, uh, but I believe we're still in the very early stages of a gold bull market, especially for gold mining shares. Some of the companies I like a lot are sponsors to this show, and because of their sponsorship, we do afford the CEOs of those companies a chance to tell their stories to you, uh, to our listening audience. You can learn more about other gold mining companies by subscribing to my newsletter at miningstocks.com, and you can also learn uh, about companies that I'm taking a serious look at by going to jayswatchlist.com. We do offer a special trial offer, a, a special trial subscription for three months to my newsletter, and that is a weekly newsletter as well as a monthly letter. You can go to miningstocks.com, that's miningstocks, M-I-N-I-N-G-S-T-O-C-K-S.com, or call my assistant, Claudio Bossi, at 
1426. That's 718-457-1426. Well, I have two partners as well, Roger Wiegand, who writes a newsletter uh, called Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who writes a newsletter called What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Roger will not be with us today. He's in Vancouver uh, doing some business up there. But Chen Lin will be joining me towards the end of the second hour of this, of this show. Chen has had an amazing record. He's taking $5,400 in a Roth IRA in January of 2003 and has grown that to 657000 Chen has some brilliant ideas about investing, and he'll be sharing some of those with you, as I say, towards the end of this show. He's uh, discovered a way to make money, uh, a way to benefit the profit from some changes that have occurred in international markets with the, um, with the Chilean earthquake. Before I go any further, I want to thank each of you again for listening to this show, and I also want to thank our sponsors for making this show financially possible. Our sponsors for the first hour of this show are Bakerville Gold, or Barkerville Gold, I should say, Crocodile Gold Corp., Resource Consultants, American Bonanza, Mangellan Minerals, Metanor Resources, Merrick's Gold, Timmins Gold, and Riverside Resources. And I should mention that Resource Consultants is a licensed precious metals broker that is headed by Pat Gorman, who is often on this show. He won't be with us today, but he's himself a radio talk show host. And you can learn more about buying gold and silver products through Pat's organization, Resource Consultants, by going to buysilvernow.com. That's buysilvernow.com. Or you can call his office at 480-820-5877, 480-820-5877. I would also like to mention Pat's uh, Pat Gorman's Wealth Protection Conference, which uh, will be held in Tempe, Arizona. Uh, and, uh, Pat, you can learn more about that uh, by calling that same number, 480-820-5877. Uh, there's a, a number of great speakers going to be there. Roger Wiegand will be there. Myself, I'll be there as well. But we have David Morgan, Richard Mayberry, Arch Crawford, Ian McAvity, Dr. Joran Brook. He's the president of the Ayn Rand Institution. Our institute and commodities broker Jim Lyles, Jim uh, Sinclair No will be there, and of course Pat Gorman too. And for just two hundred dollars, you uh, have a really nice day and a half of uh, mixing with uh, various speakers and other investors. And there's a, a lot of good food involved uh, included in the deal too. So I think it's a really good, a really good deal. I should mention that that show will be on the 26th and 27th of March. I believe it starts in the afternoon of the 26th, which is a Friday, and goes all day Saturday. And I believe I'm scheduled to speak on the 26th, uh, one of the first speakers on the 26th on Friday. Anyway, look forward to seeing you there, and please uh, stop by to say hello and let me know if you are listening to the show and how you learned about, uh, about the, uh, the show and so forth. But anyway, this week our special guest is Dmitry Orloff. He is the author of a book titled Reinventing Collapse. Mr. Orloff's thesis is that the U.S. is following the same path towards financial ruin as the Soviet Union followed a couple of decades ago. In fact, Mr. Orloff believes the first stages of that decline uh, that starts with the demise of the financial system is well underway in America. I expect he will discuss the signs of the America's demise and what we as Americans should uh, expect if things unfold as he perceives they will. This could be one of the most important guests I think that we've had on our show or ever will have. And I think we have had a lot of very important guests in the past. So if Mr. Orloff is right, um, and we then preparing for calamity, of course, is very important. We don't want to be doomsayers on this show, but what we're trying to do is see and assess reality as best we can and be prepared 
uh, for the worst uh, that that could come. And uh, we don't want to miss the good things in life because of it, but we want to be prepared in case uh, things do go the way uh, the worst sort of scenario. That and I think that many of these things are realistic based on what we see today. Most of us have lived a life of privilege that really doesn't. It just doesn't seem that we could things could change very much in America, but uh, I think if anything, the last ten years or so has shown that we do need to keep an open mind about this, what the status quo and what the establishment is telling us, because things have clearly not gone as well um, as as a lot of people thought they would back at the turn of the century. Dmitry uh, Orlov is scheduled to be with us at half past this hour, so. Uh, stay with us. Before we get to Dimitri, uh, our first guest for the day is Brian Kerwin, and he will be here with us in a few minutes. Uh, American Bonanza, he's the CEO of American Bonanza. That's a new sponsor for this show. But before we get to Brian, I would like to just uh, pass on, we've had a number of good questions coming in and comments coming in from various various listeners to this show. And uh, I'd just like to, um, to, to pass a couple of on to you. We're Going to, I'm going to, my wife is with me, Teresa, and I'm asking her to, to read the first question to you that came in from a listener to the show. Teresa? I listen to your radio show every week. I have bought three stocks you recommended on your show. They are all down. Midland Minerals, down 38%. Riverside, down 11%. Autorn, down 58%. So far, this is a very sad and depressing position for me. The percentage loss, 34.6 average, so far for me is devastating. Having 24,000 disappear really hurts, and I have again made the mistake, putting my trust in your recommendations. Can you please tell me what you think is happening with these companies? Every 1% drop in these stocks is a half percent drop in my retirement. I can't believe this situation, and I don't know what to do. All right, well, I want to thank you for that question because I think that's, uh, I think it, it points out a lot of the pitfalls to investing in junior mining companies. Uh, first, I want to just say that I am not offering to sell or buy securities on this radio show, nor am I making any recommendations on this program. I do make recommendations in my newsletter, but not on the show. I do provide opinions about companies from time to time on this show, but that should not be construed as a recommendation. For the sake of diversification, in my newsletter, I constantly tell my subscribers that they should not allocate more than 5% of their portfolios to any one stock at the time of purchase. Now, uh, for this listener, if every 1% change in the three stocks that you mentioned uh, in your portfolio knocks your portfolio down by one half percent, it suggests that you have perhaps on average 16 or 17% of your portfolio in each of these stocks. And I am willing to bet that if you had nine gold stocks instead of the three, that your losses would not nearly be, be nearly as large as they are with these three. And then, in fact, you may have even had a positive outcome during a period of time in which the gold shares have not performed all that well, I must admit. Also, last year, the gold shares were on a tear. Our junior gold shares were up well over 100% last year. So it's, the timing is also an issue with respect to when the shares are bought. So timing is very, very important. I remain extremely bullish. Uh, on the gold mining sector in general, and I think junior mining stocks will continue to do well for a long time to come. That's based on my view that the economic conditions are improving for gold mining in general. And many of these junior mining companies will never be gold producers. They will be companies that find the gold, and in many cases they will and are, in fact, finding viable economic deposits 
that that uh, will be gobbled up by major companies that are not able to replace the the amount of gold that they're producing every year. Uh, I can tell you, with respect to the companies that you talked about, the Midland Minerals and Riverside, I am very very optimistic about all those companies. In fact, we're going to have Kim Harris with us. She's the CEO of Midlands Minerals later in the show. She'll be here during the second hour uh, at about uh, 4.30 Eastern time. She'll be with us. Um, on the other hand, uh, Hawthorne may be a little bit more of a problem all, all because of an enormous amount of... of um, they've, uh, they've had to issue a lot of shares to fund themselves and the idea there was that that company was going to be able to get into production. Apparently, they passed up a, as I understand it, they passed up a, uh, a debt financing and opted for more uh, equity financing. And as they had to issue more and more shares, well, they just never got, they haven't yet gotten their project into production um, at Table Mountain. And that project was supposed to produce cash flow that would allow them to develop uh, their larger uh, bulk mineable projects. I still haven't given up on Hawthorne, that's for sure. I own some stock, and I looked at my portfolio, and I've got about 1.5% of my portfolio in Hawthorne. So I also feel the pain of, of this uh, listener, but at the same time, I must say that it hasn't hurt me nearly as bad as it would have if I had 15 to 20% in Hawthorne. Well, it sounds as though we're coming up on the break. Um, don't go away. We're going to be right back with our first guest, and we're going to be talking to Brian Kerwin. He is the CEO of American Bonanza. So don't go away. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Have you been acquiring physical gold, silver, and coins? Are you receiving the best price and the best service you can? Why not work with the most recommended precious metals company in the country? Resource Consultants is recommended by over 20 newsletter writers, several websites, and countless stockbrokers and financial planners. Call them now and find out how they can help you. 800-494-4149. 
or visit them on the web at www.buysilvernow.com. That's 800-494-4149. They'll be waiting for your call. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. As I've been saying on this show, I think we are in a bull market of a lifetime for gold mining shares. And I say that because I believe the uh, economics of gold are rising very dramatically. As I've pointed out, the real price of gold, as measured by the Rogers Raw Material Fund, is more than double of where it was before the Lehman Brothers' decline of 2008, September. Now, I don't mean to imply that these investments are without their risks. Quite the contrary. There's a lot of volatility in these stocks. Sometimes these little junior mining stocks can be illiquid. Sometimes you might want to sell and aren't able to sell for anything like you want or think you should be able to sell them. These are that's, those are characteristics of this industry and of this sector, especially at certain periods of time during a bull market, even during a bull market. But I do know uh, from experience that a broadly diverse portfolio of junior gold shares can do wonders for your overall portfolio performance, and we've more or less proven that through our model portfolio from January 1 of 2000 through the present. And so uh, we are allowing gold mining sponsors to this show to tell their stories to our listeners because we do believe there are tremendous opportunities in this sector, uh, we are not recommending to you on this show that you buy these stocks, but we do want you to hear the stories of them and to consider and do your own due diligence and check with your financial advisor as well. That's never a bad idea. Well, in this segment, I have with me now Brian Kerwin. He's the president and CEO of American Bonanza. American Bonanza trades on the Toronto Ventures Exchange under the symbol BZA. On the pink sheets, it's um, ABGFF. There are 118 million shares, 118.2 million shares, I believe, uh, more or less. That's the number. Recent uh, price, I guess the stock is up a penny and a half today, from what I understand, about 17 cents. Welcome, Brian, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Thanks, Jay. Great to be here. Well, great to have you on. Uh, as I understand it, you have a flagship project known as the Copperstone Project, and that's located in southwestern Arizona. Actually, I was down that way to visit a project for another company, another sponsor of this show, uh, Riverside Resources, and that was uh, Sugarloaf Peak, I believe it's called. 
So I was right down in your neck of the neighborhood, your uh, neighborhood there when I was in the southwest, close to the border of California. Can you tell our listeners how many ounces of gold you have there um, at this point in time as uh, counted under 43101 regulation? Sure, Jay. Um, the, uh, the current resource stands at 313,000 ounces of measured and indicated ounces, which are the ones that contribute to uh, your proven and probable reserves. Um, mm-hmm. Of that 313,000 ounces, uh, the feasibility study, which was recently completed, suggests that we'll be able to actually produce and sell 231,000 ounces of gold over six years. Okay, and what was that? Uh, did they make a certain price assumption on gold when they came up with that number? Uh, they did, and uh, per industry guidelines, um, the way it's estimated is to take uh, a three-year trailing average um, and weight that 60% of the number and two years forward and weight that 40% of the number. And um, that's a reasonably, uh, it's at least a reproducible number. It's reasonably objective, and it's 962 is what was used as the base case for the feasibility study. Oh, okay, so 962 compared to today's gold price, which is 1100 and something. So obviously if the gold price remains higher, that number would be higher. And if we had a higher number, Brian, do you have any idea, would those numbers of ounces, of mineable ounces, go up from the 238,000 ounces? Um, they, they, they certainly would. Um, that's the producible numbers, and, and they certainly would because at a higher gold price, if there's one small zone, um, that, that is almost making grade at one gold price, if the gold price goes up, that material now is worth more money, and, and therefore it becomes ore, and, uh, and then the resource um, gets larger. Um, it becomes economic then. That's right. Lower grades become economic. That's right. Okay. What is the average grade of your deposit there? Um, the average resource grade is uh, 10.3 grams per ton, almost a .3, or a little over .3 um, ounces per ton of gold. Uh huh. So that, and that, so, are, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, so that translates at today's prices to around uh, just over three hundred dollars, three hundred thirty dollars per ton, and um, mm-hmm. obviously our costs are uh, are um, less than a third of that. Okay, so your cost would be less than a hundred and less than a hundred and ten dollars. It's about ninety six dollars, yes, per ton. Ninety-six per ton. So I guess you could do the arithmetic and see what that would amount to in terms of uh, per ounce. Yes, and they're very strong economics. The uh, the at, at at the spot gold price, the discounted after-tax net present value is uh, sixty-eight million dollars, and that's in a company that today has a quoted market cap of twenty million dollars. So the project is is worth you know roughly three times uh, what the shares are worth today. The current market cap, roughly three times the current market cap. But let me just get back to this. What is the per ounce, just for those of us that don't aren't good with uh, without our calculators? What is the per ounce cost estimated then in your feasibility study? Because I believe you did do a feasibility study. Yes, the feasibility study was completed about a month ago, and um, the total uh, mine operating cost per ton of ore processed is ninety five dollars and sixty four cents per ton. That's right. Okay, so what I'm trying to do is get to the per ounce. Oh right, it's 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 um uh, th- that same number translated into per ounce is four hundred and fifteen dollars per ounce. Okay, that gives us an idea of what your unit margins are then on a, you know people can start to look at eleven hundred dollars and see what you might make. Uh, of course, that's an average number, isn't it? So right. do you expect higher grades when you start mining? Um, we do. We, this is a high grade deposit, and uh, there's free gold in the deposit, and those are obviously positive things for us. Um, but uh, it causes one to with experience with these types of deposits, 
causes one to be conservative um, basically at every turn uh, so that we get uh, you know, pleasant surprises once we start mining instead of unpleasant surprises. And, uh, and that's what we've done. This is conservative all the way through, and um, it wouldn't be any kind of a shock to me if we actually see better grades uh, when we start mining. Okay, uh, you, uh, so you've done your feasibility study, and that was just completed, you say, just a couple of weeks ago? Uh, it was actually completed. It was the, the news release went out on March, on February 3rd. I see. Okay. And what I, I guess a big concern that I have and lots of investors have with small mining companies, Brian, is what is the capital cost and how do you expect to fund yourself into production? That would be one question. Secondly, how soon do you think this project can get into production? Um, I'll deal with the, uh, the the cost number first and time second. The capital cost estimate uh, for this operation is $17.7 million. And that's, that's all? That's a very small number. Um, that's a very small number, yes. yes Why is it so low? It's, it's low because we are developing a previously mined site. Um, mm-hmm. Copperstone was mined as an open pit from 1988 to 1993, produced almost a half a million ounces in a much larger uh, open pit operation. Uh, the power supply from that operation is still on site. It's shore power. Um, the, uh, the power poles, the power lines, and the substation at the plant site are all owned by the power company and, um, you know, are maintained by the power company. So we've probably got, you know, an easy $5 million gain just right there. Uh, we mm-hmm. also have the water supply uh, that was established for the open pit mine that, that is still active and we can use. And we've also got a number of shops and, and uh, you know, buildings where the lab goes and truck shops and warehouses and things like that um, mm-hmm. that are all, you know, set up, plumbed in and wired in. And so um, those are all very significant gains to uh, to, to the company uh, with respect to this capital cost challenge that, that we face now. Well, and so, Brian, how do you um, – $17.7 million really is a very modest CapEx to get in. And how much do you expect to produce per year as you, for this uh, 238,000 ounces of mineable? What is the projected annual output of, of uh, gold production? It, it varies over time and is front-loaded, but the uh, first three years average 46,000 ounces of gold produced per year. Okay, so people could do the arithmetic. They know the average cost is somewhere around $415. They know what the gold price is. They could get a sort of a general sense of what the profitability might be, or a cash flow anyway, out of the project. And with respect to the $17.7 million, what do you expect in terms of, um, how, do you, how do you think you'll finance this? Well, the, one of the um, advantages to a high-grade deposit like this uh, with low capital cost is uh, the um, rapid payback period. That's one of the things that we normally calculate in a feasibility study. And the question is, if you were to um, have this $17.7 million and you invested it, then how long would it take before you made that much back? And, um, mm-hmm. and that on this project, on the base case, is 13 months, 1.1 years, mm-hmm. which is a very rapid payback. And so that makes um, you know, the risk associated with a debt facility uh, limited because you can pay it back so fast, and then the debt goes away and the risk goes away. Um, right now, with the, the, the current market structure of the company, um, issuing equity to raise this capital is not attractive to us from a dilution point of view. Um, So we're focused on things like debt, and we're focused on other um, less usual types of transactions. Uh, But there's a great deal of interest, and there are um, aggressive parties that want to help us with that. And so, yeah, I could imagine with a one-year payout, and, and clearly uh, then you don't have to worry so much, even if you do have to 
sell your gold forward, it's only for one year, and you're probably not going to get re- hurt real badly. Well, that's right, and, and the, ca- the limited capital cost is a real key to why this is such a great project for us. Mm-hmm. In terms of well, time, I guess oh, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. In terms of time, um, we're in the pr- permitting process now, and, and roughly halfway through that process. And we think that a significant portion of that process should be completed by June, July, and there's a chance that, uh, that, that one part of that process will go out to uh, September or October. Um, once we have all permits in place, uh, we can base, well, once we have the first permits in place, we can start uh, some surface activities and prepare for mining. Uh, once all permits are in place, we can actually uh, do the pre-development mining to prepare the underground for the extraction of ore, and uh, then subsequent to that, uh, extract ore. And um, the way the timing looks now, uh, we should, at the worst-case scenario, be able to be mining ore uh, in January or February um, coming up here. Okay, Brian, we're just about out of time, but I have to ask you, do you have the people in place, the management talent in place, or are you going to have to acquire some people to put this into production yet? From a management point of view, we have everybody in place that we need. We have we have engineers, we have geologists, we, uh, and everybody who's been in this business for 20 or 30 years. We've got a bit of gray hair on the project here, and um, and we've all done this before for big companies, for little companies, for deposits like this, and for great huge open pits. Um, so we do have that. In terms of mining personnel, uh, we're going to have about 100 new jobs uh, for La Paz County in western Arizona. Uh, as many as possible will be sourced, sourced from the local community, and uh, many of them um, are yet to be hired. Very good, Brian. Well, we are uh, basically out of time right now. We are going to have you back sometime, uh, probably in a, in a month or two or three, and, and uh, get an update from you and see how things are coming along. Will you have some more stuff to tell us by then? Sure. Um, we're, we're moving to remove risk out of the project by completing the permitting process and working our way through the financing. And in that time period, we'll make some progress on those things. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jay. Well, I appreciate that, Brian. We'll have you back. Uh, it looks sounds like an exciting story. I'm going to keep up with it myself, that's for sure. Uh, folks, don't go away because we're going to have Dmitry Orlov uh, with us. He's the author of Reinvesting Collapse. And Dmitry believes the U.S. is following a similar path to that of the Soviet Union, uh, which fell a number of years ago. If he is right, uh, well, there will be significant financial repercussions and lots of other things that we're going to have to be concerned about. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Dmitry Orlov. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. 
Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Another guest we had a few weeks ago, his name was Sean Broderick. He made me aware of our special guest this week, uh, uh, namely Dmitry Orloff. Sean mentioned Dmitry's uh, work, um, his book, Reinvesting, uh, reinventing Collapse. I almost said it again. I said Reinvesting Collapse. The name of his book is Reinventing Collapse. When I read the description that Sean wrote about uh, the work of Mr. Orloff, I knew immediately that I had to try to get him on the show, so I'm delighted to have him with us. Dmitry Orloff was born and grew up in Leningrad, but has lived in the United States since the mid-1970s. He was an eyewitness to the Soviet collapse over several extended visits to his Russian homeland between the late 80s and mid-90s. He is an engineer who has uh, contributed to fields as diverse as high-energy physics and Internet security, as well as a leading peak oil theorist. He is uh, the author of, uh, as I say, Reinventing Collapse, The Soviet Example, and The American Prospects. Uh, Dimitri, welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Glad to be with you, Jay. Um, hopefully you can help us live up to our name. We're trying to uh, help people be aware of problems you know, out on the horizon. Uh, most people seem not to want to see that. Uh, they want to just keep believing that the good times are here and here forever. My feeling is that we need to sort of perceive what's coming. If we can see what's coming then prepare ourselves for that, then I think we can prepare for, if not good times, at least better times than 
than what we might otherwise uh, otherwise experience. I think you're probably on that same wavelength. Absolutely. I think that people really have to uh, stop thinking that the future will resemble the past and uh, start thinking that the future will resemble the present. It's sort of human nature, I think, to sort of relate what you've experienced most recently and project that into the future. It's just sort of the way we live our lives, isn't it? Sort of natural. Yes, well, people um, form their opinions at a certain age and then try to maintain them throughout their lives. It's a pattern that we follow. We crystallize our knowledge uh, and then cling to it. And then when things change, uh, we, we, we're sometimes bewildered and spend a lot of time in denial. And uh, if we don't make changes fast enough in our life, uh, then, then we can be stranded or left behind or, or, or um, you know, basically become sidelined in, in society and, and lose our place. And I see, I see that happening to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I've noticed on my radio show and in the work that I do on a regular basis are people, there are some people that are able to go back and look at history and in their way make history live. They sort of can relate the present to the past or, or realize that, that America is also a country that's going to go through a cycle. And some of those people are able to and have done a much better job of predicting the financial problems that we've had than people who can't do that. Now, what, I, what strikes me about you is that you have actually lived uh, in two different uh, cycles, in a sense. You were there going back uh, professionally, as I understand it, to go to the Soviet Union um, even after you had moved uh, at an early age to the United States. So you were there and you, ha- you were an eyewitness to a, a collapse. So it's, it's almost like you, know, like you lived history, in a sense. Now you're projecting that onto America. Um, yes, and, and uh, I can do that because I'm a little bit of an outsider. I, I've had several careers, uh, worked for various companies, and I'm still working for, for a few here. And, and uh, so I'm, I'm part of the system, but also I've been able to stand apart from it. Now, mm-hmm. projecting it back to the Soviet Union, say it's uh, 1987 or so, and you're a Communist mm-hmm. Party member, so your mm-hmm. opinion actually matters as opposed to the rest of the population. And, and uh, would you say uh, that the Soviet Union will collapse? Well, no, because you would probably be um, expelled from the Communist Party. Sure. And uh, for, for saying that. And um, if, if you, uh, so you wouldn't say that. And, and so the same thing is happening here where, you know, people's paychecks depend on them not seeing certain things because seeing mm-hmm. them, uh, would be too painful because if they saw them, they still wouldn't be able to say anything about it. Mm-hmm. And you I better think that goes for a lot of people. You better believe that's true. I know that's true because I know of a, cir- a circumstance just recently in somebody that I knew that felt uh, that she couldn't really speak out broadly and, and uh, aggressively about her concerns about the future because it might prof- it might hurt her professionally. In fact, she got quite concerned about that and you know, uh, and, and sort of tempered her remarks and, and asked uh, them to be pulled back in some form. But in any event, I know that what you're saying is true. I worked as a banker on Wall Street for a number of years with various, various large-scale entities, and I could, you know, in that life could experience uh, a certain culture, but when I stepped outside to some of my more populous friends, it was a completely different world, and the attitude was much different. I want to go to some comments that Mr. Broderick made. He said um, in his book titled The Ultimate Suburban Survivalist, guide. He referred to an article that you wrote titled, The Five Stages of Collapse. Now, I have not had a chance to read that article. I just didn't, just didn't have the time to find it. But based on what Sean wrote, it is my understanding uh, that his 
that's your five stages, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Sean outlined financial collapse, commercial collapse, political collapse, social collapse, and then finally cultural collapse. Now, Sean then went on to suggest that you thought America was in its, on its way, uh, that it was well into the first financial collapse. Now, assuming Sean has properly stated your views, I have to ask you if you still see America as being mired in this first stage of financial collapse. After all, we've had a, a stock market that's been rising now for almost a year, and people, especially here at least in New York, people are feeling pretty good. So could you discuss the five stages of collapse, uh, assuming that, that I outlined them correctly, uh, as, Sean, um, as Sean did, and uh, perhaps give us some notion of how long you think this process might take? Uh, well, it's, it's hard to say how long the process will take because some, something will remain of... of uh, of finance, uh, probably not in the in the sense that we're used to thinking of it. Uh, what's happening right now, the exuberance in the financial markets, really has nothing to do with uh, the daily lives of much of the population and how they have been uh, affected and continue to be affected. So, if we're looking at, for instance, consumer spending, it's going down again. If we're looking at the number of foreclosures, that's going to rise again. Um, really not very much is moving. So basically we have these financial instruments that are very much divorced from the underlying uh, physical reality. Um, you, can, you can treat the economy as a closed system that revolves these tokens called you know, dollars or whatever mm-hmm. tokens you want, but it has nothing to do with physics. It, it's just basically a mental construct. It has some internal uh, theoretical rigor uh, that economists will defend at length, but it really has nothing to do with anything. And and uh, if you look at the system as really what it is, which is something that digs up stuff and turns it into trash or sm- smoggy air or polluted water, which is really what the industrial economy does, um, it's running out of sources and it's running out of sinks. Um, it, it's it's uh, the, the energy return on energy invested of of all of the sources is declining. Uh, the, uh, for instance, gold mining is now at the three parts per million level. That's mm-hmm. three parts of gold to, to a million parts of dirt or rock. And, mm-hmm. and so uh, tremendous energy is invested in maintaining the appearance of, of having the system that can perpetuate itself forever, whereas we know that something that uses non-renewable resources can't perpetuate itself forever. Mm-hmm. And you can actually perpetuate that fiction for a long time by, by basically hollowing out society, by, by robbing from future generations, by robbing retirees, uh, by basically telling more and more people that they're permanently unemployed and, and re- reducing, reducing them to the status of paupers. So it's possible to perpetuate the industrial economy by doing that. The question is, for how long? Mm-hmm. And that's the, the question for which you have no answer, I guess. It's very difficult well, to... at some point, people will stage some kind of a rebellion or an uprising. I don't know what form it'll take. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's hard to see people actually uh, doing anything productive along those lines at this point because the population at large is so powerless at this point. Uh, but something will break. Something has to give at some point. We're certainly seeing some, uh, some signs of uh, discontent among, among the masses in this country, I would say. Uh, I follow the um, uh, Ron Paul um, and the sort of a populist movement among the common folks. Do you have any sense that there there is a, a great deal of unhappiness, or do you think that Americans are still rather content? 
Uh, I wouldn't say that they're content. I, I sense a lot of unease and misery. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of it is hidden under this obligatory optimism that is almost your, you know, your ticket into civilized, uh, polite society. You, you right. can't really talk about how how gloomy things really are, uh, because mm-hmm. that is projected back onto the person saying it. So you, you can't really go to a cocktail party and, and by the way, mention that you really don't have any retirement savings worth talking about. Yeah. Um, people, don't, people just don't want to hear it. Uh, you don't want to go to uh, an alumni gathering and, and mention that you have this, these unrepayable student loans and that your career prospects are, are dim. You know, mm-hmm. people, people just don't want to go there with each other. So everybody just suffers alone. But at some point, people will recognize that this is really a common plight, that there are a lot of retirees who, who will be dependent on Social Security, and the trust fund is now in the red, and uh, that money will have to be borrowed from foreigners, uh, of all things. Um, a lot of a lot of people do realize that you know they have these guaranteed government guaranteed loans that that uh, they they will not be able to shrug off um, for for their education, but they don't really have the career prospects, the high paying jobs that that will make those debts repayable. So there are a lot of people who are basically in a in a position to file a class action suit against society at large. Now, mm-hmm. what form that will take is a very good question. You, uh, on page 16 of your book, uh, Reinventing Collapse, you stated, and I'd like to just quote this because I thought it was just really outlined what I believe is true here. You said, it, perhaps it's difficult for a people that attempt to quantify every kind of risk in terms of its money value to think about a type of risk that can only be compensated for through accepting a different living arrangement. Perhaps it is difficult for a nation that has not experienced war in its home soil in many generations to imagine a future that does not generally resemble the past. Americans still appear to see theirs, their land as a, as a land of free ice cream and perpetual sunshine. Much evidence to the contrary in a way that Russians or the Germans or the Chinese decidedly did not. Or perhaps the forces of the social convention that a modicum of optimism be required for one's admission into polite company throws up an invisible uh, perceptual barrier. And that's basically what you were saying a minute ago. But with respect to, you know, I'm, I'm 62 years old. I've lived in America. We've had it really good. Post-World War II America has been, we've, had, we've been on an easy street, essentially. And the rest of the world has not, uh, to the extent that we have. Western Europe's had it pretty good since then, parts of it. But do you think this is really an issue? Because uh, you came from the Soviet Union. Things were never so good there, probably for most people. Maybe for Communist Party members, they weren't bad. But for the masses of people, do you think this is really an issue that we are not psychologically prepared to deal with difficult times? And maybe that's another reason why we just can't face it? Um, Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. Now, the Soviet Union went through a post-World War II boom. Um, It actually had two booms. One during the Great Depression, when it rapidly industrialized and, and people for the first time were able to, to move from the countryside in droves and, and got access to uh, uh, city resources. And then uh, another one during the post-World War II rebuilding, um, you know, the Sputnik era and all of that, uh, where the Soviet Union was really triumphant. And especially in the 70s, when there was uh, a lot of oil that Russia was producing and exporting, it was doing very well uh, financially, internationally. 
Uh, and uh, at the same time, you know, the, the, the United States was doing rather badly in the 70s. Because of the During the 1970s. So the, so the Soviet Union had an interesting run as well. It wasn't exactly unsuccessful. Um, okay, well, that maybe gets to the propaganda, because I lived in the United States only here, and we, of course, were being told how inferior things were in the Soviet Union all along those days. Did you hear similar things in Russia? Well, of course, you always hear about, you know, the starving unemployed dying in the street in, mm-hmm. in New York. You know, that was the, co- the constant stream of uh, anti-American propaganda. There and there was some truth to that, truth. I can tell you, during the 1970s. Well, yes. I mean, the basic premise that Soviet propaganda exploited was that uh, American society, Americans do not, how to, do not know how to structure their society equitably. So mm-hmm. unless there's a giant surplus of some sort, uh, they wallow in depression. Unless there's a war or unless there's a post-World War Reconstruction boom or, or uh, some, some kind of very large economic expansion that for a limited amount of time, you know, a rising tide that floats all boats, Mm-hmm. Unless that happens, the United States starts wallowing in depression again because it has no way of equitably sharing wealth. Mm-hmm. So that was the basic premise, the basic criticism, and it turns out to be valid. Uh, in, indeed. Um, so it, it, it's, it sort of struck me uh, of late that America has been very effective uh, in running its own propaganda machine. You know, we, of course, were taught that our... our um, establishment was giving us the truth and that Pravda and Asvestia and those organizations were big you know, were, were smooth propaganda machines. But as you were pointing out, it certainly is, is true that there are pressures put on here. And I mean, you turn on the major media in this country, you're certainly not going to hear what you're talking about. Yes, and the the fact is the American propaganda is much better than Soviet propaganda. Much more it's effective. much much more much more efficient, much smoother, much what's glitzy or what? What's it's much more effective? Uh, yes, because it actually manages to project an image that people accept as reality, whereas Soviet propaganda was always viewed as um, basically some sort of a distortion. People knew that their daily lives were, were what was real, and that what you saw on television was just something they were being shown. Uh-huh. Picture. You see, in the United States, what you see on television is the ultimate truth, and what you see when you're riding a city bus is just uh, basically the result of you being unfortunate enough to, to have to ride a city bus. That's interesting. Basically, basically if, if your life in America does not resemble what you see on television, that is your problem because you're poor. Mm-hmm. And you're not doing something right. It's your fault or whatever. Exactly. So people um, are brainwashed yeah. into thinking that across the board here. In Russia, that was not really the case at all. So the people in Russia all along question the propaganda machine, question the government more than we are in the United States. Would you say that's true then? Well, they basically knew that, that uh, their daily life was quite different from the image that was being projected. They didn't yeah. necessarily do very much about it, but they didn't buy into it psychologically to the same extent that people do here. Well, I have a sense, and I correct. Let me know what you think. But I have a sense that when I when I go to Ohio, where I'm from, and I see the unemployment, and I all around the country, you see stores closing up, you see people unemployed, or unemployment numbers. And I'm one economist that we've had on this show has actually goes back and looks at the numbers as if they were done, they were calculated the same way as they were during, I think, pre-Reagan and then pre-Clinton. 
you know, he's looking at unemployment rates that are up, up upwards to 20% right now if we use the old measuring stick, close to what they were in the 1930s. And when I go through the countryside and I see, I see um, you know, all this unemployment, all these people that can't get work, well-educated, at least people with lots of degrees, they can't get work. Um, it seems to me that, well, you were suggesting there's a, there's a discontent growing in America, but sooner or later, reality has to come home to roost. I mean, Hollywood can't shape our sense of reality forever. Would you agree? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think people do start to relate to each other on a certain level. Um, if, if they're really put in circumstances that completely defy the, 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 hologra- the holographic projection that they see on television screens and, and in mass media. But it takes quite a shock for most people. Um, sometimes it just happens. You know, in, in this country, if you're unemployed, officially unemployed, and you're walking down the street and you slip on a banana peel and you knock your head, you might actually end up not being unemployed as a result of that. Mm-hmm. That is, you will officially stop being unemployed. Yeah. Um, just because of the way the statistics work. Yeah, indeed. Um, you, you have said, um, at least I think I've heard you quoted as saying um, that the former USA that we will soon that we will soon turn into the former USA, just like we refer to. I guess like we refer to the former USSR. What do you mean by that? Well, the Soviet Union could only perpetuate itself while. Uh, large payments were being transferred to the outlying regions, to the republics, to, to East Bloc countries, to, to the various outposts around the world. And while uh, it was possible for the Soviet Union to maintain its system of military bases around the world and provide direct military aid to various countries around the world, uh, when the sphere of influence started crumbling, falling in on itself because of, of the balance of payments problem, because mm-hmm. the, the, the outlying regions were going broke, and, and the central government uh, really wasn't in a position to print money fast enough without it losing value. Um, that really made uh, political dissolution more or less inevitable, because it made it much more worthwhile for local politicians to uh, pretty much mind their own business instead of trying to prop up the center by, by sending tax receipts to the center. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, for instance, California right now could do much better if they stopped paying federal taxes mm-hmm. in the entire state. They, they could pretty much close most of the gap. Mm-hmm. Um, so why would If they... I might just interrupt, I believe we've had one uh, Ellen Brown uh, on this show who is actually proposing exactly that. Well, so I'm, I'm not proposing I, I, and it. I'm, I'm hearing various it. states are starting to, to think along those lines in terms of taking care of themselves and sending less money back to Washington. Yes, and a lot of states have passed these sovereignty resolutions recently. Yes. Um, there was a, a flurry of that sort of activity. Now, this is all symbolic. Uh, sure. I'm not proposing this. I'm saying that this is inevitable. So mm-hmm. if the federal government cannot keep California, New York, <clears throat> excuse me, other big populous states out of bankruptcy, uh, then the United States as a project is finished. So the question is, how long can the central government maintain the illusion of solvency? Well, you you um, mentioned a little while ago that the U.S. is you know printing more and more money, and we're dependent. Well, we're dependent on foreign savings. You know, clearly that's true. We, we're the largest credit, we're the largest debtor nation in the world, and we have the world's reserve currency. How long do you think that can go on? Again, it's it's all a question of of perception. So, 
as the physical economy underneath decays, as, as the, permanent, the ranks of the permanently unemployed swell, as uh, uh, con- consumer spending drops quarter after quarter, you can paper things over to a large extent uh, because you're ignoring the fact that you're, you're basically cannibalizing your own society. Now, at what point that stops working is a really good question. Uh, if, if the people are sufficiently docile and are willing to put up with this sort of treatment forever, it can practically go on forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the, the whole question is, when do you encounter a, a, con- a political or social condition that will make this, this whole proposition untenable? Well, to what extent do you think that the Chinese uh, and other creditor nations' willingness to keep buying our treasuries it plays into this? Well, I think it has to, a lot to do with it. The, the entire financial system of, of the world uh, basically has to uh, send wealth, send its wealth to the United States for the United States to use it in whatever ways it sees fit, for instance, funding retirement. So at what point foreigners... Hello? Yeah, I'm here, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, at what point foreigners start balking at that? Um, mm-hmm. Again, there, there's a psychological break that can happen. Um, and it can happen at any time. Uh, it can be tr- triggered by any number of, of uh, events. It, it's basically a question of when, conf- when there is an, an event that sufficiently undermines confidence in the system. Okay, Dimitri, we're uh, coming up on a commercial break here. I'd like you, can you stay with us for another 15 minutes or so on the other side Absolutely. of the break? Yes, of course. Great. Okay. Uh, don't go away, folks. We're going to take a commercial break, and we'll be right back with Dimitri. I've got several more questions I want to ask him. I hope I can get them all in before our time is up. So we'll be right back uh, as soon as the break is over and with Dimitri Orlov. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. Merex Gold, with 800 square kilometers of contiguous permits, Merex and exploration partner IM Gold have spent $11 million on the advanced stage Surabaya Gold Project in Mali. 
Marex's indicated gold resource is based on 4% of the mineralized Surabaya megastructure. An aggressive 20,000 meters of drilling will begin to determine the true size of the Surabaya gold deposit. For more information about Marex Gold, visit us on the web at www.marexgold.com. That's M-E-R-R-E-X gold.com. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Again, I want to thank you for listening to this show, and I want to thank our sponsors for the second hour of our show, because without them, it would not be financially possible to bring you the wealth of information that we have from folks like Dmitry Orloff and many others that we've had on the show and we expect to have into the future. Just want to name our sponsors for the second hour, Barkerville Gold, Crocodile Gold, Resource Consultants, Western Pacific Resources, Pediment Gold, Silvercrest Mines, Sand Gold, and Hawthorne Gold Corp. We want to thank each of those companies for uh, helping us uh, keep this show on the air. I want to get back now to... Uh, to Dimitri, uh, Dimitri, one of the things I started asking about, and somehow we got sidetracked, uh, was the five stages of collapse that Sean Broderick mentioned in his book. Uh, I have, you know, as I said, I haven't had a chance to to read that, but could you perhaps just um, briefly talk about the five stages of collapse, and then tell us where you think we in the United States are on that on that list of five stages? Sure, uh, I came up with the idea uh, be- before anybody was talking about financial collapse. Uh, two years ago, people were still talking in terms of financial crisis. Um, after that, everybody got a, li- a little bit more spooked, and the word collapse started getting thrown around in financial circle- circles. But basically, my idea is is that there are these uh, stages of collapse where various big chunks of of uh, the social arrangement uh, that that we rely on that are that, that can be teased apart in 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 the, in the big picture when faith in them is undermined, because they can, they can collapse over a period of time. Um, but uh, people understand when, when basically there's, there's a big change and when the assumptions that things will, will go on as they have are invalidated. And this, ha- this tends to happen rather rapidly because 
there's a mechanism in society that nobody wants to be the last fool to understand that times have changed. So um, financial collapse is basically when everybody understands that there's really no way uh, to mitigate risk, to guarantee uh, financial assets, that there's nobody really who can serve as the ultimate guarantor. Um, and that has happened, and then people have backed away from that realization. But, but now there is this uh, sovereign debt bubble that will probably explode at some point. Um, so we haven't really... Um, we, we walked away from the pre- precipice in terms of thinking about it, but the precipice is definitely still there. Uh, the next stage is commercial collapse, which is um, happening because a lot of stores are, 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 are closing, going out of mm-hmm. business. There are a lot of bankruptcies. There are a lot of personal bankruptcies. Uh, the consumer, which uh, you know, is a big chunk of the economy, uh, most of the economy, is, is just not, not really rebounding. There's no consumer recovery to speak of at all. Um, and, and so uh, that is in the early stages because people still think that the market will provide for them, that market mechanisms will, will save the day somehow. And mm-hmm. we're, we're yet to see faith in, in the free markets really compromised to any great extent where people realize that, well, it doesn't really matter what, what something is worth or how it's traded. It's, the question is, can I get access to it? However, I can. Do I actually have physical possession of it? Mm-hmm. Uh, because I can't trust any, anybody anymore. Mm-hmm. There are no co- counterparties for me to trust. So mm-hmm. uh, that is yet to happen. Political collapse is, you know, we, we're seeing glimmers of it because of, of the ridiculous deadlock in Washington and the fact that they can't even start discussing the real problems, never mind solving them. So, um, and, and also there's a lot of paralysis at the state level because they're just is no understanding of how to deal with the, uh, the incredible fiscal problems con- confronted by states. Um, they, they're, they're, think- they're still thinking in terms of borrowing their way out of it and waiting for a recovery to happen. But if mm-hmm. their assumptions were that there is no recovery, um, then everything they're doing is more or less invalidated, and they're just setting them up, themselves up for, for even, even greater shocks in the future. Now, social and cultural collapse are are interesting because, to a large extent, in many parts of the United States, they have already run their course. Right now, we have really atomized society, a lot of, a lot of uh, individuals and a lot of nuclear families that don't know who their neighbors are. They, they mm-hmm. inhabit a landscape that is really interconnected using electronics and cars. So if you take those two elements away, suddenly you just have completely isolated people. And what they would have to do is start reconstituting society uh, just by walking outside and you know blinking in, in in the sunlight and looking around and and seeing if there are any humans you know still left within their immediate landscape, so that may actually be a shocking thing for a lot of people. A lot of people are realizing that now, and a lot of people are trying to reconstitute community on any level whatsoever. You know, starting a community garden or or joining some kind of a group that's physically around them. Um, there there are a lot of people just realizing that they don't know anyone who isn't online. Uh, or, you know, a lot of people have friends who are projected into their living rooms via the television set, and that's their mm-hmm. community, the sitcoms. So uh, a, lot of, a lot of cultural and social collapse has already happened, and we have to claw away back from that. Well, what is the difference between social and cultural collapse, then? Well, social collapse is really the social institutions that are the non-commercial institutions. Mm-hmm. 
that can provide for people. So th- this is charities and churches and other social mm-hmm. groups, mm-hmm. and and local governments can also uh, do a lot of that that sort of thing. Uh, community colleges, uh, local trade schools, uh, community gardens, all of that sort of thing. The question is, is there enough of that to provide for people's um, shelter, food, and security, and, and transportation needs without the larger system? And the answer is not really. It would be just mm-hmm. completely overburdened and failed. And then cultural collapse is really what people can arrange on their own as extended families or mini-tribes, if you will, or uh, just networks of friends, and, and how, um, how robust that is and how much of that there is and how much people can rely on each other directly. Um, to, to help each other through hard times. You're talking at the family level, I guess, there then. Well, the family, the nuclear family, is, is really um, a useless form of organization in, you know, when everything is, is falling apart around you. Mm-hmm. You need sure. a little tribe. Um, yes. You need a, at least an extended family. Right. You need a neighborhood uh, that, that holds together and, and fends for each other. Exactly. You mentioned the loss of confidence, uh, I think, in your discussion of the commercial collapse, uh, the loss of confidence in counterparties and so forth. It seems to me these various stages overlap one from another because I think that's part of the financial collapse, is it not? I mean, we saw some of these big financial institutions go down because of the derivatives that were, you know, and, and some of these counterparties failing and so forth, or the threat of the counterparties failing, which could have brought down the whole financial system, but then they, they pumped huge amounts of money, new debt, new debt money into the system. So, I mean, then we're, are you talking about possibly going back to some sort of a barter system, and is that something that happened in the Soviet Union? Uh, yes. Um, uh, I like to tell people that what we have now is a barter system for most people mm-hmm. uh, who are not direct participants in a large way in financial markets. What they do is, is barter. They barter their time for dollars that they can spend on consumer goods. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's really all they're allowed to do. Um, mm-hmm. In the future, people will be able to directly barter their services for other services or make products on an artisanal level, for instance, mm-hmm. grow food directly or make clothing directly and trade it for other things, use, usable, useful things within the community, because that is the usual pattern. And that is actually a better economy because uh, you're serving your, your consumers directly as opposed to halfway across the world, and you're not commoditizing things that should actually be very customized and, and fine-tuned to the point of use. Uh, that certainly seems to be. So it's going back to the basics then, isn't it? And, and I know that in, your, uh, in a video I saw, you were suggesting, uh, a video interview that you were involved with, that you were suggesting people need to sort of hone in basic skills again. Uh, so that uh, they can, you know, learn how to do the basic things for themselves when the system falls apart. Yes. Well, the shocking thing is that we have all these educated people, but the two skills they have are tapping at a laptop and running their mouths. That's all they know how to do. So those <laughs> two things don't really feed you or clothe you. You know, they yeah. don't keep the lights on. And, so, and, and then we have this uh, uh, huge number of people who are at or near or just past retirement age, who are the ones who actually know how to do stuff. And they're just not being replaced because what, what society has tried to do is replace them with people who know how to tap at laptops and run their mouths. So that's just not helpful. And, and so what we'll have to do is, is explain to our young people that 
if you're look if you're looking for a good career to get into where you're guaranteed employment, learn to grow food. Absolutely guaranteed. You will always be in demand because most of the farmers we have are there first of all there aren't enough of them and secondly they're all nearing retirement. And we do have to eat. This is a very interesting uh, thing when you talk about farmers and food because uh, my parents did live through the Great Depression in the 1930s and they lived on farms. And we had a, lar- a lot larger percentage of the American population were on farms in those days compared to where, compared today. It seems to me that uh, we, could be, uh, we could be in big trouble if there's a breakdown in the food supply uh, with so many people not having access to food. This could lead, I would think, to, to a, lot of, uh, a, lot, a lot of problems, a lot of breakdown in, in civil order. Would you agree? Absolutely. I would, I would say that keeping the food going, the food system going, in spite of all the things that are happening with the climate disruption and with the fossil fuel prices oscillating wildly uh, and problems with the credit markets and the, 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 the fact that most of the farmers are, are near or past retirement age, all of these things uh, are probably the biggest problem facing the country. Food security is just non-existent at this point. It needs to be uh, reconstituted from scratch. Uh, we, we've had, uh, you know, the Obama bounce, as some people call it. Um, we've had a, a relatively good time. I mean, at, at least if you if you only watch CNBC, you would think that things were just pretty good, not all that bad, and not robust. But we're gonna we're getting back into a growth area. I noticed that consumers, though, uh, you had mentioned consumers aren't spending, but we did see a bounce up. I think at uh, five tenths of a percent growth or something. But I noticed at the same time during the same month. Their incomes had only gone up one tenth of one percent, if you believe the numbers. So there's a, a growing gap. It looks at least like for one month as though we we started behaving the same way as we did before. We went back to deficit spending. Is that? I guess that's what they're that's that's what the Obama administration, what the status quo is really hoping for. But where and how can Americans continue to spend? Banks aren't lending. I saw a statistic the other day that ten percent of all bank loans in the United States are in default, 10%. You know, real estate loans, 18%. Credit card loans, or real estate, maybe 16%. Credit card loans, 18% in default. Do you see any prospect? I mean, why is it so difficult? I guess you answered those questions earlier, but it seems that we just can't come to grips with the reality that printing more money and creating more debt isn't the answer. Well, you you can play all kinds of financial games, uh, basically eating your seed corn, Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's what's been going on. But as far as what consumers can buy, well, there's a, a, a growing um, underclass now of the permanently or semi-permanently unemployed people who might be able to make a little bit of money, but not enough to afford a house and a car. So they're, they're really uh, outside of the system that has been created, the life support system. And that they, they no longer can pay for the requirements to be part of American society. Uh, it may be possible to actually get these people to spend, but then you'd have to provide them with products and services that they, that they would be able to afford. Mm-hmm. And, and that market segment doesn't exist. Yeah. It's probably the biggest imp- opportunity, too. And, and, and we have to import a lot of things that we, America no longer, I mean, I can remember when we were a big manufacturing power, um, when I grew up in uh, in Ohio, it was a you know in the in the Rust Belt it's called now. It was a booming manufacturing area of our country. No longer, 
What happens to us, um, I think, in fact, uh, you had mentioned somewhere along the line that the Soviets may actually, that the, that the Russian people may have actually been in a much better position to bounce back than we are because they retained a lot of those skills. Is that uh, your understanding? Well, um, the thing that made uh, Russia function for a long time is that uh, in a planned economy, you don't really pl- have planned obsolescence. So Russian cars can run for upwards of 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were only made in a few models, so all the parts are interchangeable. So you can recondition parts forever. And mm-hmm. none of them were imported, because there were very few imported cars. So just taking an, the example of cars, here we have lots of models, lots of companies. Uh, every, every model uh, has unique part numbers uh, that are not interchangeable. Uh, they have computer chips that you know, don't last very long, and you need to go to a dealer uh, to, to, to have that part of it serviced. Uh, very few user serviceable parts inside anymore. So once, once uh, the cars that we have now stop running, there's really nothing to be done about it. Um, and that's across the board. So there was a lot of Soviet technology that could just be maintained forever. And there's a lot of American technology that isn't American. First of all, it comes from some other part of the world. And once the supply chain is disrupted, uh, it no longer is functional. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, what do you think uh, President Obama should do right now? If he, if he woke up and saw the reality that you see, what, what should he do? I mean, I'm not sure that he can see that, but what should, he, what should he do? Well, there are things that are just incredibly huge risks that he can med- mitigate now while he's still in control and has some spending ability. The biggest one is what happens to the over 1,000 military bases, American military bases that are scattered throughout the, the planet. What happens to all of those weapons systems and war material? All of those troops have to be repatriated. All of those bases will have to be closed because the way it's going, there will be no money to pay for any of it. So that, that is probably the biggest thing that he, he should be concentrating on. Another one is trying to make sure that all of the, all the, all the uh, military installations inside this country, a lot of, a lot of the nuclear installations, civilian mm-hmm. and military, have to be secured against mm-hmm. really disrupted times. And, and that is a big task. And uh, another one is figuring out what to do with the gigantic prison population. We don't want government systems to fail and suddenly all these prisoners are rele- released into the street with nothing to do. But that's you actually know? happening now in California, is it not? It is happening in a lot of places. Yes, states are, are basically uh, uh, curtailing sentences. They're cutting sentences short because they can't feed people. California is actually trying to ship inmates to Mexico. I don't know how that's going. Mm. Uh, but but that, that has to be dealt with. Basically, what Obama has to do is unwind the entire project of the federal government and to do it in a controlled way. What are the chances of that? Zero. So would you say that a collapse is unavoidable? Well, yes, I think collapses in general are unavoidable. You can read very scientific, learned books on the subject, like Joseph uh, Tainter's uh, uh, Collapse of Complex Societies. Um, And and they will tell you that complex social arrangements do not self-simplify. They fail catastrophically, and then they reconstitute themselves at a much simpler level. So that's really... That is dogma. That is not really something that you dispute, um, you know, in, in a scientific setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to accept that. And, and so the question is, how will it play out here? 
So the system really has to break down before it can be fixed. Yes. What is the most important thing that Americans can do now to prepare for this uh, impending disaster? I think maybe we hit on it in, in part, but would you care to further elaborate on that? Well, yes, and there, there are a lot of things that people can do uh, just to prepare themselves and, and the people around them and, and their families. A lot of the preparation is psychological, so a lot of people are making it much harder for themselves than that it needs to be by perpetuating this fiction that everything will be fine and everything will be the same and everything will recover. Just biding their time and running out the clock. A lot of the people are now are unemployed. They really don't have any, any prospects of, of future employment that, that are worth talking about, and they're just depleting their savings and, and running out of time. So what people can actually do is, is come up with alternative arrangements where their food, their drinking water, their, their heat... Uh, their security, uh, their transportation needs are served by things that are sustainable at the level of the burn rate that they can sustain, not at the burn rate of depleting their savings and going into debt. Well, that's, that's what we've been doing, and that's how we developed a housing bubble, obviously, and then gotten ourselves into more trouble in trying to postpone the inevitable and keep the markets actually from working, in my view. Um, uh, I um, so so you're basically suggesting that we could have a military collapse. I mean, as 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 the United States goes broke, essentially, if the Chinese no longer continue to buy our debt, uh, the Japanese, whoever our creditor nations are, can no longer buy our debt. Then what happens? Do we just we we have to just pull back the empire? We can't have those uh, people stationed in 140 countries or whatever it is. We have to just our military is just going to just just shrink. Well, the military is uh, a very strange organization because they 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 actually don't don't win any conflicts. Iraq mm-hmm. was stabilized by distributing payments to to uh, the enemy so that they could basically decide. Well, it's better to just uh, collect a paycheck instead of fighting and just wait for the Americans to 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 leave and then restart the civil war. Uh, in in Afghanistan, things are even worse. Uh, it seems like there isn't any um, completely or almost completely destroyed third world, almost Stone Age country that we can successfully invade and secure. That seems to be the case. Never mind any kind of a country with a modern military. We wouldn't even be able to approach them uh, with, with any kind of a proposition of a winnable war. So this is a huge, very expensive institution that actually achieves nothing. And if anything, it achieves negative results. It wastes money. So scuttling it is really a good idea. It's a good idea, but it seems to me so much the American empire and the banking system and the U.S. dollar itself. We had a very interesting author, uh, John Perkins, the author of a book called Confessions of an Economic Hitman. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Oh, yeah, I am. I had uh, John was on our show twice, and, and he suggested that really it's no longer an issue of sovereign nations anymore. It's a matter of large corporate entities that control, that Obama doesn't really have control. And he's suggesting that these large corporate interests can go into countries like the Soviet Union, into China, and that they that all these leaders and rulers can be can be essentially can be bought out by large multinational corporate interests, so that we're moving towards a one-world government. But it doesn't sound like you would agree with that. Well, I think it's a lot more chaotic than a one-world government, and it certainly doesn't resemble a government. But what you can what you can see in disrupted places like the Ukraine, for instance, uh, politically disrupted through the Orange Revolution, is is that a lot of security, a 
lot of government security went away. The government was basically dysfunctional and still is. But there, were, there was a lot of private security. So private organizations start taking over where the government no longer functions or where the military, national military, no longer functions. Mm-hmm. So I think we will have various types of military and semi-government-like groups that are basically corporate and private guarding certain key assets. Mm-hmm. I think that that is more or less inevitable. And I mm-hmm. think that this will happen across borders in many places. So talking about national sovereignty will be basically uh, some kind of a, you know, an, an intellectual exercise, no, no practical merit. But, but I, I don't think that we're, we're about to see some kind of a monolithic corporate state that will actually uh, uh, be successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, nationally, not even as I as I understand what you're arguing is that we'll see a breakdown even nationally, as has happened in the Soviet Union, and local local groups will get together to protect themselves. Yes, I, I think that various key facilities will be guarded. There will be mm-hmm. various enclaves that, that will be carefully fenced in, and uh, certain uh, key individuals will reside within their walls and sometimes be allowed to to leave. Okay, we have about four minutes to the break, and uh, but I, I want to ask you, if the U.S. empire goes away, the military collapses in the U.S. empire, the U.S. dollar no longer the world's reserve currency, and we have some sort of a global collapse of, of the status quo right now, what do you think happens? What kind of a world do we live in then? Well, I, I think that it would be a very disrupted world where we will have a lot of migrants. So stable populations will... Uh, will be under constant stress from, from uh, groups of people who will be constantly on the move, environmental refugees, economic refugees, uh, refugees from military conflict. And so, uh, and at the same time, borders will dissolve. So it, it'll be very hard to, to find out what it is we're talking about when we talk about a certain place. Do we, talk, do we talk about the population that was there before or the people who are there now who might leave next year? So we're we're really looking at a disrupted period of time where there's a lot of uh, a lot of fluidity and a lot of dynamic change and and uh, also it'll be very difficult to see what's going on. It'll be very murky. I would love to talk to you some more about uh, oil and maybe we can just touch on it with a couple of minutes left here. Yet I know that you you have a background in physics and and also uh, you have some pretty. A pretty well educated and strongly held views on peak oil. Would you care to just talk momentarily about peak oil? A lot of people, you know, refute the argument of peak oil. They say, well, at some price, there's always going to be oil available. We've got shale, we've got oil sands, we've got, you know, new technologies, and all of this is uh, much ado about nothing when it comes to talking about peak oil. What do you say to those folks? Uh, I agree with them. I would say that if somebody gave me a hundred billion trillion dollars, I could probably get some oil out of seawater. Mm-hmm. So, so it's not a physical constraint. It's just the fact that you can't really run an economy uh, where uh, some large percentage of that economy is sunk into getting the raw materials for it. At some point, the the uh, the level of investment in in providing a specific volume. Of, of energy becomes too high and and the economy starts to crash because all of the other types of of demand that that exist within an economy a healthy one are are not met mm-hmm. not everybody can work for exxon mobil right so it's a, it's a matter of economics uh, it's true there's no physical constraints but economic constraints it's it's what you're talking about 
Well, it translates to everything starts with a physical constraint. So it, mm -hmm. in terms of physics, it's energy returned on energy invested. It, mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with money. Yeah, and, you, and, and you're, as you mentioned earlier in the show, uh, the first uh, hour of our show, you talked about how it's taking increasing amounts of energy input to get a unit of energy out. Uh, yes, exactly. So that, for instance, if you project coal in the United States into the future, we have almost infinite amounts of coal or coal-like stuff that we could continue digging out. The question is, when, in terms of the energy we get out of it, is it no longer worth digging out of the ground? Mm-hmm. That is, we, we, we use up one unit of energy to get one unit of energy out. Mm -hmm. Now, it turns out that an economy cannot function at even 10%. So, like, 1 to 10 uh, is, is bad. Um, but in a lot of cases, we're heading towards 1 to 4, 1 to 3, which is, is really right. bad. All right, Dimitri, we, we're just running out of time now. I want to ask you, how can people track your work going forward? And, and I also want you to tell them about a new book that you have coming out, if you don't mind. Well, um, the best way to, to uh, keep track of what I'm doing and contacting me is, is my blog, which is very lively, and it's cluborlov, O-R-L-O-V, dot blogspot, dot com. Uh, lots of thousands of visitors every day. And, and uh, the book that I'm, I'm thinking of writing, working on, I don't, don't really have plans in terms of a, an exact date, but it'll be on the five stages of collapse because that's... Uh, always a, a, a very popular subject with people. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Dimitri, for coming on to our show. It's been a most interesting um, uh, discussion, and I want to thank you so much because I really do believe that in order to, to set the stage for good times in the future, you have to prepare, be prepared for the adverse times that you might have to face. So I think you've done a great job in helping us understand uh, your vision of, of uh, the problems the U.S. is facing and I want to thank you very much, and, uh, and I hope that we can talk to you again sometime. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jay. Bye. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be with Kim Harris. She's the CEO uh, of a very good company, uh, Midlands Minerals, and she'll be back with us right after the break, so don't go away. We're going to get an update from Kim, who was with us before. She'll, um, she'll tell us how her company is doing uh, in Ghana, West Africa. We'll be right back. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. Want to know more about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the problem so that effective remedies can be prescribed. 
by applying rarely taught Austrian economic theory to policies implemented by our policymakers, Jay Taylor has been able to nearly double the value of his model portfolio since 2000, while the stock market has lost nearly half its value in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio, TV, and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit MiningStocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Kim Harris with us. She's the CEO of Midlands Minerals. Uh, Midlands Minerals trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol MEX. It trades on the pink sheets under the symbol MDLXF. About 104 million shares outstanding. Uh, last I looked, um, and that was earlier today, it was at 36 cents. We've had a pretty good day and for the gold markets and the gold shares, from what I understand, so perhaps it's up a little bit. But in any event, thank you, uh, Kim, for being with us. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thank you very much for inviting us. Has uh, your share price uh, gone up a bit today, possibly? Have you any idea? Did you get a chance to look before well, you came on the show? Well, it's been sort of uh, a little uh, versatile in the last few days, and that can be very easily explained. We uh, had a financing which closed in December, and we, we put out about 21 million shares and change, and a lot of those shares became free trading on the 10th of March, which is just a week ago. And that's why there's been a lot of activity in the sort of on the lower end because the people that bought at 15 cents obviously are making money when they're selling at 26, 28 cents. So, uh, but the the one good thing about about the whole thing is that it's 21 million shares that went out in December, and the activity has not really been that big. There's not the volume, 
So uh, what we expect is a lot of people are hanging on to their shares. They can see the value in the company. We're drilling at the moment, getting quite good results, and uh, we're going to be getting these uh, results every three weeks or so from my SGS, and uh, so far everything is on track. The drilling is going well. The results are encouraging, and uh, we're quite focused on getting to a million ounces, which has been our target all along. Okay, so uh, did that offering, going back to the financing you just did, did that offering have some warrants attached to them? Well, it had uh, warrants attached at $0.25, cents, so, uh-huh. but we sold uh, we sold. Uh, 21,750,000 shares at 15 cents. So they're the ones who are watching, really, because as soon as they, they became free trading, there were a few people, I guess, that wanted to cash in. Sure. But as I said, we were pleased because there isn't the volume. We didn't get, you know, millions and millions going out the door. So what that tells us is that there is confidence in the company, and the people have confidence in what we're doing. You know, we're drilling after all, and the results are coming in. So it just makes a lot more sense to hang on to what you've got uh, mm-hmm. that you paid very little for in, in this particular case and uh, cash in with the drilling. Yeah. So, I mean, so uh, so some of our listeners who might have bought your shares at a higher price understand if, uh, if someone was able to buy shares at 15 and the stock's selling at 26 or 28 and they've got a warrant attached, they could sell those shares and still keep a position with the warrant, couldn't they, And they, for a longer-term hold? I, I would see a few people doing that. But as I said, you know, there is not the volume. We haven't uh-huh. had a flood of uh, warrants being exercised or or shares being sold. So that's mm-hmm. a good sign for us. Well, the important thing, I think, is for investors, we did have one one listener who, uh, who, who indicated that he apparently had purchased some shares of Midland Minerals. He, uh, we read his statement earlier in the show, and he apparently... Uh, that and a couple of other companies that he bought, his timing wasn't the greatest. So I guess what I'm what I'm what I'm looking for here is the sense that uh, even though the stock has come off its highs, and I think it was up um, up around 57 cents or something like that. Yes. Uh, that that um, the longer term picture here looks good. At least that's as I understand it. What you're what you're suggesting. I think the longer term picture looks very good because the uh, it's supported by. Good drilling results and and uh, an underlying really excellent property in terms of mm-hmm. geology and potential. So we're looking at a multi-million ounce deposit on that Cian Prasso um, package in Ghana, and we also have the the option of going into production once we hit our million ounce. Million ounces is just a target for us, and it, it, there is potential for way more than that. But we need to get to a million before we can add to to that million, and that's what we want to use as a benchmark before we look at the, the possibility of production. That I mentioned because Cyan is a past-producing property. It has a 30-year mining lease. It's fully permitted. We have a plant on the premises, and the plant can be refurbished for between 8 and $10 million, mm-hmm. recommissioned completely, and that can be done in a six-month time frame. So, so we've got that option that is a very, very attractive option, and on top of that, we have, two million tons of ore that was left over by, by the previous owners. So we do not want to get into production before we reach a million ounces because we may have some of our shareholders thinking that we're not as focused as we ought to be. So we would like to do the two things at the same time, hit the million and start to add to that million. At the same time, we review the uh, the cash flow the option that we have. Kim, the two million tons that you're talking about uh, has that got a 43101 resource on it that you can talk about? Well, we actually the, the t- this is ore that was just 
piled there in stockpiles by the previous mm-hmm. owners. So when they closed down, they just left it there. So what we've done is we've sampled it so far, but our sampling was not scientific in that sense. In that mm-hmm. There's a huge boulder, so we're only chipping away at corners uh, of these huge rocks to okay. take to the lab just to establish whether they're mineralized or not. What we're doing okay. now is actually drilling through the stockpiles mm-hmm. to a depth of 25 meters, and, and our holes are going to be 25 meters apart. So we will actually come out of that with a reserve because this is ore that's already mined, and you know, once we, uh, if we drill it in that way, then we'll have a good sense of how many ounces are there. But the, the work we've done so far gave us over a gram a ton. Mm-hmm. So if if, so you, so if, you, if you have, uh, if that holds up uh, two million tons with a gram, it's just sitting there. You could process process that through the mill if you if you start production again. Exactly. That's that's the intent. And uh, in terms of who is doing the mining and so on, we, the company that would be doing the re- re- recommissioning of the mill is actually an operating company. So they, they would be able to uh, re- recommission the mill and also operate it on our behalf. And the other, the ore, the rest of the ore is just there. It's just a matter of you know, getting a contractor to move it over to the mill. So, so that, that's really ready cash there. We just want to get to a million ounces, which we think we can do in, a, in the next few months. The drilling is going quite well so far, and everything is on track. Kim, we always like to look at economics as much as possible, and I know that you have to be cautious in terms of what you say for regulatory reasons, and just because I know you're a truthful person, you would, you would, you would do that with, with or without regulations. But if you could uh, give our, our listeners some sense of, of, yeah, but it was a previously operating mine, uh, can you produce gold for um, you know, five hundred bucks, six hundred bucks, four hundred dollars. What? What do you? What's your we hunch? We would do it at well below five hundred dollars. The previous owners were producing an ounce of gold at two fifty. It's at an 250? open pit mine. It's an open pit mine, and they were using a CIL plant. And in their case, their plant was completely manual. Part, part mm-hmm. of what we would be doing in uh, recommissioning this plant is is automating it, which would make it a lot more efficient. So, so that's what we're looking for, the, uh, the payback and the efficiencies in terms of the production side of it. If they were doing it the way they were doing it, at 250 an ounce, we should be able to produce an ounce at 350 an ounce. At 350 and of course, times have changed. I mean, costs have gone up generally. When was the, when was the mine last in production? Uh, they, they finally closed it in July 2004. Mm-hmm. But well, they, that, would be, have, that would be that would provide have, some some great economics. Any any sense of how much how much you may be able to produce in terms of uh, tonnage per day? Yeah, yeah. How much uh, tonnage and, and ounces? I guess you don't really know. You I have to know the the millhead grade and all that uh, at this stage. But, but you do have some operating experience, so you know more or less. Um, you know the uh, the recoveries, the metallurgy is known, which is something that you know a lot of new projects don't know. Yes, so we're recovering 93%, and, and that we have also verified uh, in our own test. Uh-huh. And we've verified it also by doing a survey of the tailings, all of the tailings that came out of the plant. So all three, you know, looking at the, the data from the previous owners, our own tests, including the, the survey of the tailings, all of it is concluding that they were, in fact, recovering 93%. So we would expect to, to recover much the same given that it's the same material that, that, is, uh, being, uh, that would be processed in the plant. So the recoveries would be good. Uh, in terms of grades, now they were, uh, they were averaging 2.3 grams uh, per ton from this open pit. 
we probably could get higher grades because what we've done is uh, calculated the current resource we have now, which is 400,000 ounces, and we've calculated that based on uh, drilling down to 120 meters. We've also drilled below 120 meters. And when we go below 120 meters, we're getting much higher grades and wider mm -hmm. widths. So there's some kind of dilation happening there that we know that if we could get material below 120, it would increase the grade from 2.3 to some, uh, some other higher number. So we're quite confident that we would be able to bring up uh, the, the grades as well as the, uh, the quality of the resource. Um, well, that's, that's terrific, and you, uh, I think those 400,000 ounces is just really a small percentage of the, of the known um, structure has been drilled out, is that right? 400,000 is coming out of less than 5% of the entire drill target that we have, the, the, the anomaly that we're drilling on. So we're okay. just, and we're going to get our million ounces, by the way, just by increasing the ounces within that 400,000 ounce area that we're in which is about two kilometers, a radius of two kilometers from the current CIL plant that's on the premises. So we have not touched the bulk of the, uh, the property at all. And uh, what we're trying to achieve in this next drilling program is not only to reach and exceed a million ounces within the next few months, but we also want to drill outside of the, uh, the, the known deposit to the north and south, several kilometers away, to try and establish the size of this deposit because we've got a 16-kilometer strike length, and uh, so far it's, it's where we're working, the area is just a tiny little area. And we, we will be able to find multi-million ounces in that small area. Uh, so, so the potential for a multi-million ounce deposit on the 16-kilometer on the strike length is, is humongous. Uh, Kim, we're just out of time, but I, I, it strikes me as you're uh, talking about an eight to ten million dollar capex to get this mill back into production. Yes. Were there other capital costs that would be involved in getting into mining? Well, I think I think getting the plant up and running, the recommissioning of that would be the, the main the main mm -hmm. part of it. The mm -hmm. mining end of it, you know, we're lucky we've got the two million ounces already, two million tons that have already been mined. So sure. It would be a transportation. There's no cost of mining there for us sure. to process the, the 2 million tons. But there would be working capital, and I, I would think that to get everything up and running, we're probably looking at about 20 million. Okay. All right, and that could be financed in any number of ways, I suppose. Well, we're going to have you on again. We're, we're really out of time right now. I would just suggest to our listeners that, uh, you know, consider all of the facts that Kim has given you. I think this is a very a very promising story. It's a company that I have in my newsletter. It is a recommendation in my newsletter. I'm not recommending that people to this uh, in this uh, radio show listen to it, but that uh, you subscribe to my letter. Um, you know, there are always risks involved, and timing is one thing. Kim, what do you sense in terms of timing getting into production, and what what is a possibility? Not not stating anything categorically, but when do you think you might be able to get into production? A year and a half, two years? I would think I think a year and a half would be quite realistic, if not right. sooner. Well, I, I mean, you're still at a very low market cap, and that's one of the reasons that I still like this story an awful lot as a buyer of Midlands Minerals. That's what I'm saying to my subscribers. In any event, thank you, Kim, for being with us. We'll have you back on again sometime in the near future. Folks, don't go away. We're going to have Kim. We're going to have Chen Lin with me. He'll be coming on to talk about a very exciting opportunity in the paper pulp industry. We'll be right back with Chen Lin.
can. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. American Bonanza Gold's project, located in Arizona, is scheduled for production in 2010. American Bonanza Gold announced the positive results of its recent feasibility study at its 100% owned Copperstone Gold Mine. The mine is estimated to produce an average of 45,000 ounces of gold annually. At the current spot gold price, this will result in an IRR of 120%. Join the gold bull market. Invest in American Bonanza Gold. Visit the website at AmericanBonanza.com for more exciting information. Don't miss this great opportunity. I am Jay Taylor, your host for Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Gold has risen from $250 to well over $1,200 since 2002. That has greatly improved gold mining profit margins and profits for gold investors. But mining stocks are very risky, so you do need to know which stocks have the best chance of success. I believe Magellan Minerals, traded Toronto under the symbol MNM, is one such company. That's why it is a top pick of my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Go to MagellanMinerals.com website to learn more. Have you been acquiring physical gold, silver, and coins? Are you receiving the best price and the best service you can? Why not work with the most recommended precious metals company in the country? Resource Consultants is recommended by over 20 newsletter writers, several websites, and countless stockbrokers and financial planners. Call them now and find out how they can help you. 800-494-4149. Or visit them on the web at www.buysilvernow.com. That's 800-494-4149. They'll be waiting for your call. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try to you're listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, uh, my one partner, Roger Wiegand, is up in Vancouver today. He couldn't be with us, but Chen Lin is with us. and uh, So welcome, Chen. Yeah, thanks, Jay. Hey, uh, so we were we were meeting earlier in the day over here in Manhattan, and you you went home to catch the end of the show. But I, I just want to ask you: you mentioned over lunch today at some of the group that we were meeting with uh, about paper pulp stocks. Would you care to give our listeners uh, the, the the story on paper pulp stocks and uh, why you're bullish on them, and you know why they've done so well over the last couple of weeks? Okay, yeah, I just started to take off, so uh, actually I've been buying. <laughs> Throughout average up throughout in the past few weeks, uh, the, the situation is this: okay, paper pop. Uh, the uh, demand is pretty stable. You know, mostly used on napkins, toilet paper, paper towel, 
Uh, there's a lot of usage for newspaper as well, but newspaper uh, use mostly are recycled. So the net use there is quite small. However, in 2008, 2009, we saw a huge downside for the new newspaper, partially due to recession, partially due to the uh, Internet. So that's actually hit the industry very, very hard. So by 2009, none of the pop maker was making money. So they shut down 20% of the capacity. You know, that, that's a very, very serious one. I mean, they shut down 20%. Inventory dropped from uh, 50 days to 20 days. The average is hmm. 35 days. So it's like very, very lean inventory, no inventory, and then the 20% capacity was taken off permanently, and then suddenly we have Chile earthquake. And Chile earthquake just hit the Chile paper pile, paper, paper pile area, the mill area, and uh, immediately... You know, the, 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 they were just, you know, 8% of worldwide capacity were taken out. So with all these, and then the, the paper power stock, stock price is like going through the roof, okay? We are talking about a huge, gigantic increase, and then there's more increase ahead. Uh, because all the Chile was supplying China, and China couldn't have paper power, they will come back to the spot market to fight for that. So, so that for those pop, paper power makers, they are trading at below one times earnings. Because people didn't realize how much leverage they have, you know, they do, so with their capacity, and then they have a, they go through a very tough time last year to have a very good union contract. They reduce their costs, uh, more efficient, and then we have a huge upturn. So they're going to make a killing this year. Wow. So uh, you, so they've gone up a lot, but you think there's still a lot more upside, and and that's one question. And the other question is, uh, how quickly can the Chilean uh, producers come back on stream? Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, those are far away from the earthquake uh, center. Maybe take a month or two. I mean, the other may take longer. I, that I don't know, and I do mm-hmm. not know how much uh, net stock was destroyed. You know, some of the stock, you know, they ready to ship was destroyed as well. So those are still not clear. Okay, uh, that that that's how long it will take to to come out of the. Um, come back. And also one thing I want to add, because of the, the credit crunch, all the new meals supposed to online got canceled. So there's no, mm-hmm. no meal, new meal coming online this year except one from China. So new, no uh-huh. major new meal. So, so that's actually very, very, uh, for the, a commodity trader, it's uh, like the most ideal situation. Okay, it's, just, uh, it's only one way it's going up. It's a question of how high it can go. And then even at right now, the, the power price, you, you're trading at one-time earning. I have a, a Timbag, a TMB at Toronto, and then Mercer, M-E-R-C, at the, uh, NASDAQ. So those two stocks, I mean, trading at, if you like, calculate that current price is below one-time earning, and then this price is still going higher. What was the name of the first one again, Chen? Uh, Timbag, T-M-B at Toronto. T-M is in Mary, B is in Boy? Right, Tom, Mary, boy, yes. And the other one was? Uh, Mercer, M-E-R-C. Now, Chen, I know that you are a trader. You're in and out of stocks fairly quickly sometimes. If you get your sort of uh, upside target, what would convince you to think that that this play is about over and it's time to get out? Oh, when, you know, everybody on the CNBC talking about it. Okay, when Kramer well, says buy it, in right? The summer, uh, because I see it's a continue. They just raised price by $50 this month, uh, and I think probably another 50 Maybe I, I, I'm just speculating next month and then next month. Yeah, right now, the, the list price is 950 a spot price pointing to almost 1100 So they're going to raise price continuously throughout the summer. Uh, and, 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 you know, and, and then people 
will be on, you know, then they will have earning in a month, about a month, they will have earning report. Earning will shock a lot of people. And then people, you know, when people get everybody on board, it's time to get off. So, so then, you, yeah, so then you expect we'll see a rise, a dramatic rise in the share price, perhaps, and then the, then the game will be over. Well, at least for me, you know, I can probably okay. move on to the All right, look, Chen, we're out of time. I've, I've, got to, I've got to apologize to you. We didn't leave much time for you today. Our other guests uh, ate up a lot of time. But I want to thank you so much again for your great ideas. We'll be talking to you next week, no doubt. And next week, our special guest is going to be John Truman Wolf. He's the author of a book called Crisis by Design. Sounds a little conspiratorial. We'll see what John Truman Wolf has to say about that. What crisis is he talking about? I think he's talking about the financial crisis. In closing, I want to thank the staff at Voice America, starting with my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Ruben Columbe, my operations manager, Justin Jacklin, the engineer. I want to thank these folks for making this show logistically possible, and I want to thank each of you for listening again. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't real.